Anybody else grow up on the Home Alone movies? Right? Anybody see Home Alone? Yeah, so Kevin McAllister, he's eight years old when his family leaves him accidentally over Christmas vacation. And he's home alone, and then he has to deal with these robbers who are trying to get in and, and rob people while they're gone on Christmas. And then in Home Alone 2, his family does it again, right? Leaves him alone again. So there are so many good Home Alone quotes, right? Some of you just think in Home Alone quotes like me. <clears throat> For example, I bought a stamp from our bookkeeper, Jackie Meadows, sweetest lady in the world the other day. 49 cent stamp. stamp. I gave her 50 cents and I said, Jackie, keep the change. And she looked at me and she said, you filthy animal. <laughs> That's not exactly how it went, but um, don't tell Jackie I said that. What stays in, what happens in Life Center stays in Life Center. So, um, <clears throat> but I'll never forget in the second movie, and he prays in the first movie too, but he prays about macaroni and cheese. In the second movie, he's standing before the Rockefeller Center Christmas tree and the novelty of being alone by himself is worn off and all he wants is for his family to come back. And he, he prays this prayer and this is what he says. He says, God, I know I don't deserve Christmas. I don't want any presents. Instead, I want to take back every mean thing I ever said to my family, even if they don't take back the things they said to me. I don't care. I love all of them, including Buzz. I, I know it is impossible to see them all. Can I just see my mother? I, I, I never want another thing as long as I live, if I can just see my mother. I know I won't see her tonight, but <clears throat> promise me I can see her again. Sometime, anytime, even if it's just once and only for a couple minutes, I just need to tell her, I'm sorry. And then off camera, you hear, Kevin? And he turns around and he says, Mom. And he looks back at God and he said, Wow, that worked fast. <clears throat> you know, if only every prayer worked like that, right? But I think we've all, we've all been at that place where Kevin is. Not, not necessarily left alone as an eight-year-old on Christmas, but we've been at that place where we are ready to bargain with God. God, if you will just do this, then I will do this. I don't even need any Christmas presents. I'm going to be a good boy. I promise if you will just do this. I remember um, taking tests in school occasionally. I mean, I was a great student, but occasionally I can remember not studying and praying as that test was handed out, God, if you'll give me the answer to number 16, I'll be a, well, I'll be a better Christian than Jesus, which has all kinds of theological problems in there, right? But you can remember praying those prayers. It might have been about a test you were taking, a girlfriend or boyfriend who dumped you in school. Man, you've been there before. Those are kind of silly examples, the kind you look back on and laugh but there are those prayers you will never laugh about, right? The time when you feel like all you have got left is to make an offer to God, to bargain with him, to, to redirect a car, to stop a cancer, to keep a heart beating, save a relationship. You're willing to make some offers to see what he'll do in return, right? So Hannah is who's the mother of Samuel eventually, not yet, when we find her at the beginning of 1 Samuel, is making one of those prayers. 
We're starting a new series today called The Heart of the Matter, and it's in 1 Samuel. If you've got your Bible and you want to turn to chapters 1 and 2, that's where we're going to be today, 1 Samuel 1 and 2. And we tend to remember Hannah for this prayer she prays in chapter 2. This prayer of thanksgiving to God because he has provided her this son, Samuel. But when we find her in 1 Samuel 1, she prays this different prayer that we don't usually remember. And to set that prayer up, what you have to, have to remember is what she's going through. So just imagine this with me. All month long, every month, Hannah waits and waits thinking, maybe this is the month when I'll be pregnant. And at the end of every month, she sits down with one of those pregnancy tests and she takes the test and she sits there with it and it's in her hands, just waiting on it, right? Going like this in the air. Because more than anything in the world, she wants a child that's hers. So all month long, every month, she's praying for this. And then she gets to that point where she's taking the test and she just sits there waving it thinking, God's going to hear me this month. God is going to hear me this month. And she looks at the test and she throws another one in the trash can. Paniah, who is Elkanah's other wife, Hannah's husband, Paniah had children, the text says. Plenty of children, more than she needed. But Hannah had none, the text says verse 2. And it's not because she's not trying. Year after year, the text says in chapter 1, verse 3, Elkanah, her husband, he would, he would make his way up to Shiloh. He'd take an animal to sacrifice for Hannah so that she would have children. And they would wait, and then nothing. And this happened year after year. And Elkanah, he'd look at his wife, Hannah, with pity in his eyes, and he'd say, Hannah, why? Why are you weeping? Why don't you eat something, honey? Why are you downhearted? He'd say. And my guess is that every mother in here and every woman who's wanted to be a mom could answer Elkanah better than I can. How can he possibly understand What's going on inside her heart? This storm that's just raging in there. And yet somehow, in the midst of that storm, Hannah stood up, the text says. And when you see it in that context, that image is arresting, right? She stands in the midst of this storm, even though her heart is being flooded and overwhelmed by despair month after month, still she stands up and she returns to God and she cries out, Lord Almighty, if you will only look on your servant, your servant's misery, remember me, not forget your servant, but give her a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of my life. So the bargain is on the table. What we're doing, God, is not working. My heart can't take it. Here's the deal. So when you recognize that what she's doing is bartering or bargaining with God, you might recoil a little bit from this prayer. It's probably not the way you were taught to pray, even if you, you 
prayed that during some science tests in 11th grade or something. It's probably not how you were taught to pray. You might think about Jesus when he's standing on the top of the temple and the devil whispers into his prayer, if you jump, then the angels will catch you. And Jesus snaps back at him, it is written, don't put the Lord your God to the test. And apparently no one's told Hannah that. And we think, somebody should tell her. So, but before any of you do that, before we go putting our foot in our mouth, remember that trash can that's just full of those negative pregnancy tests. Years and years gone by. I think there are some in this room who really know, who know what Hannah's going through. There's some in here who've had their hearts broken every month when the child they want more than anything seems another month further away. Like God just isn't hearing that prayer. And probably they understand in ways not all of us do what the author somehow gets when he says in verse 12 that this prayer comes from the deepest places of Hannah's heart. It's coming from her heart. So when we accept that and we pause long enough to actually listen to what she's saying in the prayer, we can realize when she says, if you, God, then I will, blank, we realize what she could have said, that is, since you have not God, then I will not, blank. Which is a prayer you've probably heard before and is often the last prayer a person will pray. Do you hear the difference between those two? We're calling this series this summer the heart of the matter because as you remember in 1 Samuel, King David, who comes on the scene midway through the book and is kind of the climactic figure in 1 Samuel, he is said to be a man after God's own heart. Yeah. Apparently there's something inside of David's heart that is not inside of Saul's heart, the king who precedes David. And we know this because 1 Samuel also tells us That God does not look at the things man looks at. God looks at the heart, right? Yeah. So we know that in 1 Samuel, what we need to be doing is paying attention to any language about the heart. And there's a lot of that language in the book. And, And in this very first scene, this tortured woman, Hannah, who wants more than anything to be mother, what is at stake is her heart. If you look at these verses behind me, you've got there in 1, chapter 8, it's her heart that is sad, devastated. It's her heart that bursts forth in this agonizing, bartering prayer with God. And finally, in chapter 2, after God has given her son, Samuel, it's her heart that rejoices in the Lord. And I think it's tempting to kind of pass right over chapters 1 and 2 of 1 Samuel and say, well, this is just kind of another example of that classic biblical motif of a woman who can't have a child and God provides for her and that kind of sets the way for Samuel and David and that's where the real action happens but I think if you pay attention to this language about heart that you realize that Hannah is asking the fundamental question here in these first chapters of the whole book of 1 Samuel and that question is when your heart is broken To whom does your heart lead you? So whenever this, whatever this is, is no longer working, to whom do you turn? 
I think that's an ancient question here, but it's really timely. One of the major issues in 1 Samuel, as we'll see, is the advent of government in the nation of Israel. Before 1 Samuel, Israel is only obedient to God, and then in a few chapters, they'll be begging Samuel and God to give them a king like all the other nations. So it's kind of the start of government. And I think that really every election cycle, whether it's here, whether it's the elections going on in Britain right now, the ones recently in France, all over the world, I think what it pivots on is that question. Okay, when your heart is broken, to whom will you lead you? To whom will it lead you? They know you're you're asking that question, and they're trying to answer it for you. What what they communicate to you is, things aren't working, and you know it. But trust me, I can fix it. Turn to me, give me your heart. You know, I'm reminded of Ghostbusters, often, generally, but particularly in light of elections. Right, I, I think about the theme song. To Ghostbusters, when I watch election coverage online, remember how it goes? When there's something strange done in your neighborhood, who are you going to call? Ghostbusters, right? Somebody can fix it. Something's not working, and someone can fix it. Trust me. Give me your heart. I got it. St. Philothios, he was a, a preacher in the Eastern Church. I, I don't know if he was thinking about government when he said this, but he has this great line. He says, stand diligently at the gate of the heart. Guard it. In 1 Samuel, in so many ways, Israel is just like Hannah. Like the whole nation is unable to give birth to what they most want. They want to be a nation like Egypt and Babylon and Persia and all these other big powers. And they're just not getting there. And so they look around and they say, what all these other places have is a king. God, give us a king so we can be like them. In fact, they, they fall down and they beg that God through Samuel will do that so they can be like everybody else. They, they give up on God. But Hannah doesn't fall down. She stands up. And she goes back to God and says, there is no one holy like the Lord. There is no one beside you. There's no rock like our God. <clears throat> I remember in, in college, I was taking a class on Psalms, the book of Psalms. We had this great teacher, really, really really wonderful teacher and at near the end of the class we we had we had gone through much in the book of psalms and if you've studied the psalms you know there are different types of psalms and one of those types is a lament psalm and in a lament psalm it, what you're basically as you hear from the language of lament it's it's a cry to god you're, you're pleading with god you're upset about something and near the end of the class, the, the professor, he said, okay, what I want you to do is open your Bible to Psalm 88. And maybe some of you will do this this afternoon. Psalm 88 is typically kind of considered the worst of the lament psalms, the saddest, the most despairing of them all. He says, open it up. He says, what you know is that most lament psalms typically have three features. They have a complaint, a confession, and an affirmation of praise to God. So, so you complain to God, but then you turn around and say, but God, I trust you. You can handle it. And he says, look at Psalm 88. He says, I think it's missing the affirmation of praise. 
And so we did. We opened our Bibles and we looked through it. And, and he was right. It says, day and night, I cry out to you. I'm overwhelmed. You've overwhelmed me with all your waves. Why, Lord, do you reject me? Your terrors have destroyed me. Darkness is my closest friend. We didn't get it. We said, how is this in the Bible? Shouldn't be here. And he kind of smirked and he said, at least he's still talking to God. At least he's still talking to God. And maybe that's what separates Hannah from many of us. It's what separates her from the nation of Israel beside her. When her heart is most broken, it leads her back to God, not somewhere else. Chris Arnade, he wrote recently a story of losing his faith and regaining his faith. He was a Wall Street banker for many years, and when he regained his faith was when he left that and, and went to pursue his passion, which was photography, and he spent three years photographing homeless addicts in the south of Bronx. And so he, um, he, he, he believed that what he was going to find there, and really the reason he went there was because he believed that these would be the people who had most given up on God, like himself, because their lives were the worst. Okay, the people for whom nothing was working, you know, heartbreak written all over every person on the streets. Right? What he found was the opposite. As he started documenting these people, he tells the story of Sonia and Eric, who were two homeless addicts who traveled around together. And he said every overpass that they slept beneath, every abandoned building that they crawled into, the one possession they took with them everywhere they went was this old and kind of tattered picture of Jesus at the Last Supper with the disciples. And they would hang it up on a nail wherever they went. And he tells the story of Sarah who'd been on the streets for 15 years and her one possession was a cross that hung around her neck. She never took off. And he tells this story of um, going into different crack houses and among all the needles and lighters and pipes, he would inevitably find a Bible somewhere in the crack house. And it just struck him. And he tells the story of Takesha, who was abused as a child, assaulted. Eventually, she became a prostitute. And one day, he takes her portrait, and he says, you know, I'm going to put a caption beneath this portrait. How do you want to be remembered? And, and she said, without pausing, she said, well, as who I am, a prostitute, a mother of three, and a child of God. And I think in their own way, they were teaching Chris what Hannah's teaching all of us. You probably remember the song that many people have sung, Jeff Buckley, Leonard Cohen, Hallelujah. Remember that song? He says that love for God is not a victory march. It's a cold and broken hallelujah. Remember that line? It's a cold and broken hallelujah. And that's what they were teaching Chris. And maybe, maybe that's what Hannah's teaching us. Because she's doing this bartering, this deal-making prayer with God. But somehow, I think, even in that, she's showing more faith than many. In fact, she's kind of paired against Eli. She's, she's, she's put side by side with Eli, who's the priest at the temple. And Eli, the person who's supposed to be most in touch with God, the person who's supposed to turn to God most often, 
When he hears her prayer to God from the depths of her heart, he thinks that she is drunk. What's this crazy drunk lady saying? It's really startling. The person who's supposed to be most attentive to God knows God least, and the person who has every reason to turn her back on God can't help but keep turning back to him again and again. Just a side note, that shows in their families. Their heart shows in their sons. Eli has two sons. They're bad dudes. All of Israel hates them. They inherit their father's cynicism. But Hannah's son, Samuel, becomes the prophet of God in Israel. And all of Israel hears him, the text tells us. And I think there's something there for parents. Again, this is just an added side note. I really don't know anything about parenting yet, as my wife and children would tell you. But I remember my dad preaching hundreds of sermons. I can see him up there preaching those sermons, and I don't remember anything he said, really. I remember this one sermon about a paint can. That's a long story I'll tell you another time. What I do remember about my dad is every morning at 5.30, he was up, and he was sitting in the recliner in the corner of the living room with the lamp on, have the Bible in his lap, right? Returning to God. There's something about a heart that is oriented to God no matter what that matters. It matters because at one moment, God can seem very active in your life, in my life. He can appear very active in the world, answering our prayers in really obvious ways. And then in the next moment, like we read in chapter one or chapter three, verse one, in those days the word of the Lord was rare, and there were not many visions. And some of you might say, man, that sounds familiar, right? But Hannah reminds us it's then that turning to God matters most. When this, whatever this is, stops working, who will you turn to then? To whom does your heart lead you? I'll end with this. When I read this story, I couldn't help but think of Peter, the Apostle Peter. <clears throat> you remember after he denies Jesus and Jesus is resurrected and he sees the resurrected body of Jesus. He sees Jesus walking around. Even after all of that, one day he kind of finds himself in a funk, like my mom used to say. He's in a low spot. He's so low, in fact, he doesn't know what he's really doing. And so he says to the other disciples, well, I'm going to go fishing. You remember that story? And you can just kind of see him out there bobbing around in this boat, just kind of sitting there. And you think to yourself, man, he is as adrift as this boat that he's on. And Jesus has to come back and say, Peter, do you love me? Right? Well, then go feed my sheep, Peter. I think Hannah is a hero, a heroine. David's not the only hero in 1 Samuel. Really, Hannah is because even, even though she's bartering with God, even though she's making this deal with God, she has not given up on him. Now, maybe she knows better than Peter, who saw the resurrected body of Jesus. Maybe she, like those of us who didn't get that privilege, right? 
somehow knows better than Peter that it is only God who can turn a thing around. That just like it's only God who can bring a man dead three days back to life, it is only God who can place a child in her womb, then it's only God that can change any situation in your life. It's only God. Your heart should lead you to no one else. And so in a few chapters, as we'll see in a few weeks, when the rest of Israel falls down and says, give us a king, God, we don't want you anymore. Hannah will not be there. She'll be standing before God, returning to him again, because only he is worthy of that. So what about you? Just think this week, this summer, as we head into this series, as you head back to work tomorrow, back to whatever it is you're doing the next few days, when your heart is broken, and it's probably been broken, where does it lead you? And if you can answer that, then, then you have. You've arrived at the heart of the matter. You really have. And I hope you will. Let's stand and sing together. I'd love to receive you for prayer. I'll be down here up front for a few minutes. We've got shepherds in the back who'd love to pray with you. Or if you haven't given your life to Jesus in baptism, today would be a great day to do that. And I'd love to talk to you about it down here. Let's sing. Great is thy faithfulness, O God, my Father. There is no shadow.